Hello and welcome to the Poplar Tapes. Um, this is the first in our three-part series entitled There's Nothing Wrong With Counting about algorithms and the digital condition. So uh, stick around, we'll release two more uh, discussions after this one. So my name is Keegan Irish. Uh, and uh, my name is Alex Bose. Right, and so uh, I'm a recent uh, graduate from a master's in philosophy program. I'm based in Montreal right now, and I'm uh, doing my MA uh, in translation studies at Concordia. And uh, and Keegan and I have uh, we've known each other for about almost a decade, and uh, uh, and we met in uh, university. We've been in a couple bands together. Um, we uh, yeah, we spent hours hanging out and talking about the stuff we've been reading in university, and uh, yeah, we, uh, built a pretty pretty strong foundation for a friendship. So yeah, exactly. And so we wanted to kind of continue a lot of the conversations uh, that we have been having and move them into like a digital form now that we live far apart. And, and so this podcast is sort of a vehicle for us to keep exploring some ideas that we think are really interesting. As I mentioned, uh, this is a three-part series, and this first part is going to be on polarization. How do uh, algorithms and uh, digital world affect the way that our politics are kind of increasingly polarized? Um, this is a common discourse that you'll hear, so we hope to kind of dive a little bit beneath the surface with that one. And the second part is going to be on algorithms and the market. And the third part will be on surveillance and subject formation. So we hope that you guys will stick around for all three. And um, yeah, follow us on Twitter if you would like, uh, at The Poplar Tapes. We would love to uh, chat with you there. And without further ado, let's get on to our discussion. We're going to be discussing algorithms. And so neither of us are kind of experts on the subject. We're not computer scientists or engineers or anything like this. So we're going to be coming at this from more of a philosophical um, and political perspective, where we think about some of the implications of these new technical developments in our society and just how widespread uh, they have become. So one of the things I think we both noticed when we started getting into this material is just how much of it there is. There's a ton of uh, scholarship surrounding questions of what it means to have a society that's been thoroughly integrated with these algorithmic processes, with large-scale data collection and uh, processing. Um, and there's a ton of different implications. So yeah, it's, absolutely. There's a lot of material mm -hmm. here. Um, so I think what we're going to do today is really just introduce some of the themes and topics that we think are important with respect to this. Um, and not go too, too in depth on any of them, but do more of like a cursory survey of some of the important issues. So let's just begin by explaining what is an algorithm? Like, can you give a definition of an algorithm? We'll talk about that. Then we'll talk a little bit about their history. I'll uh, give a, a, a short little um, history of how the term algorithm kind of came into the English vocabulary. It entered into 
our vocabulary by means of translation, obviously. It's derived from a name, and uh, the name Algorizmi appeared in a Latin translation of a work by Persian mathematician, astronomer, and geographer uh, named Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi. I'm not really sure if I'm pronouncing that name right, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book on calculations, uh, and it was translated into Latin. The Latin translation begins with Dixit Algorithmi. Also, don't know how to pronounce Latin, um, but that <laughs> means uh, algorithmi said, uh, more or less. And uh, over time, the name, especially in the Middle Ages, I believe, uh, became a term that was associated with advanced forms of calculation. And uh, in the world of computation, algorithms kind of started out as static instructions that would carry out a specific task, and the activity would essentially repeat itself over and over again. The static instructions were created with syntactical structures of coding language that kind of carry out commands. And I mean, again, I, I can't really, it sounds extremely abstract, so obviously I can't explain uh, exactly how it works. But uh, mm -hmm. um, one thing to keep in mind is that coding is an instrumental language. And it was, you know, it's, it was a new language that was created with the rise of new technologies. And it's, uh, it's a language of technology, and it's functional, and it's you know, it's it's unambiguous. It's not similar to natural languages of communication that we we use to convey meaning, right? It's not it's not really about meaning. It's really about uh, being extremely precise in the way that it works, so that it can be functional and you know carry out tasks. And so that's what kind of co coding is coded language for uh, that you know programmers use in, uh, in developing software and these kinds of things. Yeah. So. Um, if I could just jump in there, maybe it's helpful to think about this this kind of instrumental sense of the algorithm. Uh, if I could just pull a quote from uh, our friend Stalder here. So Felix Stalder wrote a book called The Digital Condition. And in there he writes, an algorithm is a set of instructions for converting a given input into a desired output by means of a finite number of steps. Algorithms are used to solve predefined problems. So the problems have to be conditioned in advance by coders in order for these algorithms to function, right? Um, so Zeynep Tufeki, another scholar who uh, studies algorithms, wrote that uh, algorithms are complex computer programs that crunch data and perform computations to optimize outcomes chosen by programmers. Um, so she says it isn't some pure sifting mechanism that spits out objective answers in response to scientific calculations, and it isn't. But neither is it a mere reflection of the desires of programmers. So there's a bit of ambivalence. Yeah, there. definitely, definitely. And uh, I, I might even add another uh, uh, another reference here. But uh, there's mm -hmm. this uh, American mathematician uh, who worked in the finance industry for a number of years be before she became disillusioned uh, with it. Um, and her name's Kathy O'Neill. And she's the author of a work called Weapons of Math Destruction. And uh, mm -hmm. in, in that, she claims that uh, algorithms are like an opinion embedded in mathematics, right? So... 
you know, uh, to add to this idea of the fact that it's not like a pure sifting mechanism, but it's actually responding to specific kinds of situations that have to be diagnosed or whatever, then uh, the relevance is that the very design of an algorithm has a kind of bias inscribed into it, I guess, into its structure. But then there's even more beyond that, right? Uh, not only is uh, bias kind of inscribed into an algorithm, which can make it not... Uh, I mean, wait, well, yeah, I mean, a, an algorithm is never neutral, but now, today, since algorithms are no longer static, but dynamic and adaptive, uh, which means that they, uh, you know, they're they're in a state of constant change, uh, and that's that's partly because they are shaped by not only the designers but the data that are that is generated by users and their interactivity with other algorithms. Essentially, what happens is they have a learning process, a reflection reflexive process that allows them to learn and mutate. There's that kind of ambivalence, right? There's there are all of these different factors that come into play in relation to them. And I, I think that one thing to keep in mind is that although they are never neutral, they're not, you know, they're not complete enemies either. They're not uh, completely destructive. Yeah, it has to do with the goals that are established for a given algorithm, right? So in the case, we're talking about dynamic algorithms. So a dynamic algorithm would be um, an algorithm that isn't simply a static set of instructions, but an algorithm which is able to dynamically alter its instructions in order to attain the best result. And so a huge amount of computing power is uh, used to run all of these possible algorithms until one is established, which um, out gives the desired output. And uh, so these algorithms become self-learning, self-improving, and they call that an evolutionary or a dynamic algorithm. And part of the issue with this or part of the question around a dynamic algorithm, both what makes it valuable to programmers and uh, what makes it kind of frightening from uh, an outsider's perspective, is that it's a kind of black box. So once the algorithm is attained that outputs the desired output um, on the basis of this evolutionary computing process, there's no way to really reverse engineer logically how that algorithm was developed, given that if there was, those instructions would have simply been input in the first place and you wouldn't have needed to develop the dynamic algorithm at all. So that kind of loss of control, I think, from a scientific or mathematical perspective um, or an engineering perspective is really kind of interesting to take note of when we think about the more advanced um, kind of computing functions. Frankensteinian. Okay, so I think that's, yes. Uh, yeah, there's this wonderful quote here um, where uh, Tufeki says that uh, with algorithms, we don't have um, an engineering breakthrough that's making life more precise, but billions of semi-savant mini Frankenstein's, often with narrow but deep expertise that can no longer un that we can no longer understand, spitting out answers uh, here and there to questions we can't judge just by numbers, all under the cloak of objectivity and science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that sounds very um, accurate, especially when we're thinking about black boxes. You know how they're kind of aut autonomous, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mutating, you know, forces basically, right? You know, they yeah. become these forces that are out beyond our control. You know. It's a kind of natural force that uh, isn't direct, no longer directly under the control of a computer scientist. Yeah, or something exactly. Like this. All right. 
So I think that's good for a description of algorithms. What I want to talk about next is um, a little bit about the context in which these algorithms are being used, because this is uh, really important for understanding why algorithms are problematic, because algorithms are not problematic in and of themselves, right? Like you wouldn't say a math equation is problematic. It doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> But you would say that the way certain things are used, the way certain instrumental logics are deployed, um, could have social consequences. So the context for um, this advanced, this kind of huge expanding advance of computing power and who has control over it, all right, this is the stuff that becomes really interesting. Uh, so. If we could come back to our friend Stalder here, uh, he talks about the context quite a bit and um, the generation of these fields of information that uh, algorithms become necessary in order to yeah. organize. He quotes the Communist Manifesto, uh, which I thought was a really interesting point. And so he... He quotes this passage, all the settled age old relations uh, with their train of time honored preconceptions and viewpoints are dissolved. Everything futile and fixed goes up in smoke. Everything sacred is profaned. And so here Marx and Engels are talking about the introduction of capitalism and its effect on existing pre-existing communal structures. And so it has this effect of breaking down all of the old ties that bound societies together, that bound communities together into these tight knit groups where meaning was held. Um, and with capitalism, people are taken away from these groups. They're kind of thrown uh, into the laboring classes. They're stripped of their property and so on. And so those ex uh, older models of communal existence break down. But not only that, uh, the webs of meaning that held together the culture of those communities also break down. And so what that does is it frees up different cultural objects and ideas and strips them of the narratives that had given them meaning. And so this is an ongoing process. That's characteristic um, of the, and, the digital condition too, right? Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so as things become digitalized, this process just accelerates. Another thing that mm -hmm. uh, to keep in mind is that uh, algorithms are fundamental components to, uh, that constitute our media and communication infrastructures. Stalder talks about uh, the specific semantic contexts that formerly shaped the history and orientation of institutions um, have been dissolved or, or reduced to dry metadata, and millions upon millions of cultural artifacts are now equidistant from one another, instead of certain artifacts being firmly anchored in a location, for instance, in an ethnographic collection devoted to the colonial history of France. It is now possible for everything to exist side by side. And so what this means that is that cultural objects are freed of uh, these meta narratives and they become more open to interpretation. But simultaneously, um, kind of anchors of meaning are broken down and new kinds of communal formations have to arise in order to make cultural meaning again. So the condition 
that people encounter is this world of information um, that is totally like a self-referential closed sphere. And you have to kind of join some of these communities that are attempting to navigate uh, this new informational world, which could be described as not completely disordered, but more like a meta structure, a potential for order, because an individual can't um, go through all this information on their own and determine what is valuable. Rather, they need it to be pre-sorted in some way. They need things to be um, sort of brought to their attention that are deemed to be important. And so a lot of that work of pre-sorting um, from this self-referential informational world is done through the computing process of an algorithm. But it has, in order for a cultural object or an idea uh, or a narrative to be imbued with meaning, it has to take this, what you could call a detour through the body. So somebody has to actually pay attention to it and respond to it and engage with that thing. And a group of people need to continually do that in order for narratives to take on meaning or for cultural objects to take on meaning in the context of the digital condition. Exactly, exactly. And the informational world, as it kind of exists today uh, has changed quite a bit since the early days of the internet. Like when you're talking about the meta structure and the potential for order, that, that is a particular development that has arised with the development of highly tailored forms of uh, algorithms. So um, right. earlier on, I guess like early 2000s, Google's search engine algorithm was, uh, I think it was called PageRank. And mm -hmm. it basically operated on two variables, which were, you know, the relevance of information and popularity and popularity kind of determined the relevance of pop, uh, sorry, the relevance of, uh, information, uh, based on how many links particular content had in this kind of situation, there was a sort of like whenever an individual user would make a search, they would have more or less the same kind of access to this kind of external informational world. But with the development of dynamic algorithms and these highly personalized algorithms, what has happened is that individual users don't actually really have access to this kind of static informational world, right? It's this idea of the meta structure and the potential for order is the very fact that the algorithms are pre-sorting uh, information based on previous activity and, you know, the history of your searches and a variety of different variables, you know, maybe hundreds of variables based on uh, your data profile, essentially. And so then yeah. all of these, so then every individual user who uses something like Google or a search engine that uses algorithms to create these tailored results end up with these very, very singular and individualized worlds. You know, uh, mm -hmm. when we think about the context or role of things like uh, Facebook or Google or, I don't know... Um, YouTube or whatever. Yeah, those 
those since you know they're caught up in the distribution and circulation of information let's you know information is such a general term but when you think about media narratives and political narratives and these kinds of things then it becomes a lot more important right because uh Mm -hmm. algorithms are playing this huge role in uh constructing the spheres of visibility of information in the spheres spheres of visibility of certain voices and you know it can be brought into this context of inequity and uh violence and all these kinds of things so Right. So one media narrative that we hear a lot about these days is this question of political polarization. And there's a lot of blame placed on media for the way that um, our societies are politically polarized. You know, normally this is thought about in terms of like liberals versus conservatives or whatever. But when you start to think about the way that meaning about the world is constructed uh, in relation to these processes of meaning generation that um, require uh, information to be broken down and pre-sorted algorithmically, and then you realize that those algorithms are personalized to viewpoints and uh, these different communities, um, then that becomes very real, where it, it, it is, in fact, the case that our societies are extremely polarized due to the fact that um, we have entirely different communal spheres of meaning from one another. And so if you uh, if two people are talking about the same cultural object or the same cultural narrative, the way that that uh, object or narrative has meaning to their community um, can be radically different. And so it's this kind of sense of passing in the night where you can be talking about the same thing, but because of the way that meaning is constructed in this digital context, it won't mean the same thing from these two different uh, perspectives. Exactly. And uh, we see this all over the place now, uh, especially when we think about the emergence of far right and, you know, these strange groups like incels or or mm-hmm. uh, the the attacker, like the... Yeah, the Christchurch, Christchurch yeah, shooter. Yeah, and, and yeah. The, uh, the shooter just recently in San Diego. I mean... Um, yeah, out of synagogue. Yeah, and I mean, these these... These attackers both used fringe message boards, right, uh, on HN, mm-hmm. right, and I mean this—it's—it's uh, it's been called or it's been self-proclaimed as like the darkest reaches of the internet, you know. And it's just like those—those those are examples or manifestations of these communal formations that have uh, emerged and developed uh, out of these conditions in the digital infrastructure that exists. Uh, Yeah. And here you have an example of two people who live on opposite sides of the globe, but who nonetheless share a set of cultural references and narratives based solely on their interaction with these certain communal formations online. And it's a set of references and shared meanings that is radically alien to most people in society, right? Like most people are not participating in those kinds of message boards. 
But at the same time, as meaning is generated in those isolated contexts, it starts to spill over into society at large, right? And I mean, this is what we saw with the 2016 American election and so on. And we're seeing now in Canada is that these more fringe uh, type of conservative groups who've been insularly talking about um, narratives about the world and conspiracy theories and so on and so forth, uh, that is echoed and taken up in uh, in mainstream conservatism to an increasing degree. So while the meaning may be generated in these more fringe elements, as long as they are kind of allowed to persist, then that meaning spills over into the larger communal formations that they might be a part of. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the last thing I wanted to mention with respect to polarization was um, the actual business model of Silicon Valley itself. And like, you know, Silicon Valley is so profitable because um, it employs so few people, but it has this user base of uh, literally billions. So... They, what they need is for its users to be constantly engaging with the content of the website in order that they can translate that engagement into the data that they sell. So they want maximum engagement. They're incentivized um, on the basis of their profit model to maximize this kind of engagement. And the kind of content that gets the greatest engagement is, in fact, uh, often very divisive and inflammatory uh, content, which itself like feeds back into the political polarization. It fosters um, these kind of animosity between uh, different groups. Um, I mean, you know, this is something that needs to be taken very seriously. Oh, no, yeah, no, sorry. it's all good. Go yeah, it is something that needs to be taken seriously. But like uh, a good example of this is... Um, the Gillette ad that came out a few months ago, I think it was in January or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was, it became, you know, it was about, um, uh, toxic masculinity and the whole message was about redefining masculinity. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it, be, it, you know, it created a buzz and people were talking about it for a few days. Uh, and, um, and, you know, there could have been many different, points of bringing politics into that obviously creating a buzz and uh creating more engagement is part of it right and then also potentially customer loyalty and things like that but uh this is just just this is just one kind of real world example of how this is kind of you know this is a right it's the case right and in that particular example, one of the key marketing strategies for that is the backlash against it that they want from conservatives, right? That's very predictable. So it creates all this engagement, which then multiplies the amount that the ad is seen by like many kind of orders of magnitude. Um, another, but another example of how this works and is an, an issue that uh, Tifeki uh, gives is from 2014, where she talks about um, the article, uh, news articles about the killing of Michael Brown. And uh, these articles did not generate very much engagement because it's hard to click like or to comment on an article that is about a police killing, 
right? So often those articles would be buried. Whereas something like uh, the other example she gives is like the anti-vax, anti-vaccine um, conspiracy theories peddled by like Glenn Beck or whatever. Um, those do extremely well and go viral on on Facebook. So uh, because they generate all kinds of uh, of this crazy engagement. So when you have a business model built on engagement then these kind of uh, social fissures will continue to be exacerbated by the, the, these platforms. All right, so that was the first part in our three-part series. There's nothing wrong with counting. So thank you guys for sticking with us uh, this far. We'd really encourage you to check out the next two episodes that uh, we're going to continue doing on this subject. And again, it's kind of a very broad and open-ended subject. So um, if you would like to hear more about a specific theme or idea that we brought up, you know, please uh, do let us know. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at The Poplar Tapes. And um, yeah, thanks for listening.